Hello, I'm Brett Dillon, and this is The Movie Chronicles in the crazy year of 2022. This episode, I'm talking about documentaries. So let's dig straight in with Downfall, The Case Against Boeing. Director, Rory Kennedy. Script, Mark Bailey and Kevin McAllister. Director of Photography, Aaron Gully. Editor, Don Clessy. Music, Gary Lionelu. Actors, Donald Trump, Ted Cruz and Lester Holt. I have to admit that I was personally mystified to find in this movie that after the Mount Erebus crash, anyone's starting position after an aircraft crash would be, must be pilot error, nothing to investigate here. On October the 29th, 2018, Flight 610 from Jakarta, Indonesia crashed soon after takeoff. There were no survivors. This was a new Boeing plane. Boeing immediately began playing the blame game and also drew out the racist card. That this film doesn't pursue, perhaps because systemic racism is so entrenched in the US culture. It was pilot error, said the aircraft manufacturer. Anyway, this airline is third world incompetent, so who are you going to trust? Investigation revealed multiple design flaws in the aircraft. A broken sensor on the nose of the plane was the origin of all that followed. This was the only sensor giving information to the MCAS system, which no one outside Boeing even knew existed. The MCAS system was created because this model of aircraft, if it went into too steep a climb, would stall the engine. The MCAS system was designed to override the pilot control and correct the error. Pilots were not told of this system for two reasons. One, they would need to be trained in how to use the system. This would increase the cost of buying a plane and hence decrease sales. Two, if the pilots learnt that they only had 10 seconds to correct any error in the system, they would have insisted it be taken out of the plane. When this chain of deceit was uncovered, Boeing explained it away by saying it hid this critical system specification so that pilots would not be overwhelmed with information. Pilots responded with the passive-aggressive comment that the more they knew about the planes they flew, the safer it was for them and their passengers. I don't think this film mentions Boeing ever apologizing to the pilot they defamed, nor did they pay any compensation to the families of the victims of their corporate malfeasance. Instead, they spent the money to pressure the regulatory group in the USA not to ground their planes. Pilots were trained on how to handle an MCAS system failure. Trust us, said Boeing, we know what we're doing. On March the 10th, 2019, that's a year later, Flight 302 from Abbas Ababa created a huge crater in the ground. There were no survivors. Pilot error, once again exclaimed Boeing. Only problem was that the flight recorder showed the pilot had done exactly what Boeing had recommended for an MCAS failure. Boeing 
doubled down, citing its safety record. China grounded that model of aircraft and countries around the world followed suit. This is the point politicians became involved. Did Boeing knowingly put an unsafe aircraft into commercial airspace? Boeing lobbyists pushed hard on the narrative of pilot error. I got the impression that off-camera, the discussion was, stupid niggers, what do you expect from them? Nigeria pushed back by presenting the evidence of the black box. White maggots, do you think we don't know the truth? The film at this point now takes us back in time to trace the systemic failures created by U.S. corporate culture. Back in the 1980s, Boeing merged with McDonnell Douglas. This merger shifted the Boeing culture of safety first and last to the McDonnell Douglas culture of quarterly profits first and last. Standards fell dramatically as the company ceased to take interest in creating a quality product and instead pursued a policy of creating value for Wall Street, i.e. the company only existed on the stock market. The product it was really creating was share value. Just as sales were falling due to policies such as reducing staff, downgrading the health and safety provisions for workers, limiting reporting on design issues, and removing management to a different city so decisions could not be influenced by designers, Boeing began to suffer serious competition. This led to even more compromises and a no-documentation-of-design-problems ruling so that management could have believable deniability. In 2019, the cover-up started to unravel as U.S. investigators revealed Boeing management had known about problems with the MCAS system from the start. That's why it was kept secret from outsiders, and why the FAA was kept out of the information loop. The film is coy about the compensation paid by Boeing to its victims. The U.S. taxpayer got $2.5 billion, and I would hope the families of the victims got a similar amount. It also doesn't mention why the CEO of this scandal was allowed to leave with a golden handshake. His fraud and business practices that have brought the company into disrepute should not have been rewarded. It sets a very low bar for corporate behavior. Again, as the money is available, why didn't Boeing just donate the money to the victim's family, especially as this asshole didn't even have the balls to apologize to the families in person? The impression I got from this film is that the U.S. has a very perverted standard of accountability. Management, who make decisions on behalf of their companies, cannot be held legally responsible for those decisions because it is the company who performed them. Companies who are under control of these CEOs cannot be held fully accountable because they are legal and not physical entities. In short, the elite have created a system in which it is almost impossible to hold them to account. This is not good for a society. Think about all the people this company and this CEO murdered because money in the hand was more important than human life. Consider also how the company refused to accept blame 
and thus improve itself. Lastly, consider who really has to pay the price for the crashes. I'll give you a hint. It isn't Boeing or its managers. I'll give you another hint. Taxpayers. Director Rory Kennedy was born on December the 12th, 1968. Rory's father, Senator Robert F. Kennedy, was assassinated six months before her birth. Tragedy continued to follow in the wake of the Kennedy family. When she was 15, her brother David died from a drug overdose. Meantime, Rory was protesting outside the South African embassy, where she was arrested, by the way, and organized a rally in support of migrant workers. U.S. citizens wanted to profit from their labor, but not pay them for it. In the 90s, Rory went into partnership with Vanessa Vadim to form Mayday Media, a group which produces and distributes movies with a social conscience, i.e. telling the U.S. what it needs to hear rather than what the elite wants it to hear. Insurrectionist and traitor Donald Trump, the man who would be queen, was born on June the 14th, 1946, and is still unfortunately alive as I record. But I can dream of never having to hear his whiny, effeminate voice ever again, can't I? Cocksucker lips. What can be said about this amazing businessman? Sociopathetic liar, failed businessman multiple times, con man, fruit loop, shit stain on the reform, democratic, independent, and republican parties, TV non-entity, loser, golf cheat, genocidal maniac because of his handling of the COVID-19 crisis, traitor, insurrectionist, and serial rapist, according to reports and his own accounts. The reason he rapes is because no one will have sex with him unless he pays, and he pays a lot. The syphilitic rot is so potent that his racism actually makes him look cuddly when you place it beside his narcissistic reimagining of all his faults as virtues. Whenever he criticizes someone, remember, his judgment is severely impaired, so all he can do is project his own faults and blame them on others. Ugh. I have to wash my mouth out with soap from refraining to say what I really think of Dickless Donald, the man who told his followers to never surrender after he had surrendered. Useless waste of space-time Ted Cruz was born on December the 22nd, 1970, in Calgary, Canada, and is also still, unfortunately, alive. The only thing dumber than Ted Cruz are the people who keep voting for him, expecting him to actually do some work on their behalf. This dripping pussy of corruption is a professional politician and the token Hispanic in the Republican Party. Little Token has proved to be a useful idiot to the party that despises his very kind. History performed its duties with honour, as a shining example to the last two people I've done a biography on. No matter how low the bar for performance, those two will always fail to meet it. January the 4th, the five permanent members of the UN Security Council, i.e. the five members who should not be allowed to veto on any resolution, issued the declaration that a nuclear war cannot be won and should not be fought. 
I'm wondering who they thought was thick enough not to know that. The initials DJT come to mind. January the 10th, the first successful heart transplant from a pig to a human was performed in Baltimore, Maryland, USA. Now, you're probably thinking Donald Trump was the recipient because, after all, he's probably the closest genetic equivalent to a pig. But it was not so. May the 12th. The Event Horizon Telescope revealed the first image of the black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. Racists and homophobes are outraged at this smear on white supremacy. September the 26th, the DART missile launched by NASA crashed into the Dimorphos asteroid, throwing it off course and proving this technique as a possible feature of planetary defense. September 27th to the 30th, Hurricane Ian smashed into Cuba and the USA. 157 people were killed, 16 went missing, and the US treated it the same way they do gun control. October 28th, the X-rated twit, Elon Musk, completed his $44 billion acquisition of Twitter and started shifting the platform to his narrow definition of free speech. You can now issue death threats against Jews, Muslims, blacks, gays, etc. But even the smallest criticism of pansy Elon Musk and you're thrown off the service. Harden up, Elon. December the 21st to the 26th. A major storm hit northern USA and Canada. US politicians still think taxpayers pay their wages to do nothing. And now for the disappointingly named The Mystery of Marilyn Monroe, The Unheard Tapes. Director Emma Cooper, Director of Photography Jeffrey Sentamu, Editor Gregor Leon, Music Anne Nickton, Actors Anthony Summer, Marilyn Monroe, Arthur Miller, John F. Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, Peter Lawford, Jimmy Hoffa, Joe DiMaggio, and John Huston. Goodbye, Norma Jean. We must be really scraping the barrel to make a mystery of her death. In 1982, the case of the death of Marilyn Monroe was reopened. This was mostly due to conspiracy theories based on anomaly hunting. A journalist assigned to look into this inquest later wrote a book. His taped interviews, reconstructed for this film, formed the justification for this film. Nothing new is revealed. I will give the film some kudos for finding a new format to create a biography around Monroe, but that's as far as I'm prepared to go. We go back to 1946, when the casting couch sex in exchange for movie roles, was standard practice in Hollywood. Marilyn manipulated this corrupt and corrupting system to her advantage. This led to questionable liaisons with men like Johnny Hyde. The film now does a chronological leap to introduce psychologist to the stars, Dr. Rolf Greenson. He tried treating Marilyn with unconventional methods because she would not, or could not, come to his office. 
1954, she married Joe DiMaggio. Nine months later, it was all over. Then, she married playwright Arthur Miller. In between, she was meeting the Kennedys through their pimp, Peter Lawford. In 1961, Marilyn divorced Arthur Miller, and the Kennedys re-entered her life. This had now become problematic. They were targets. Jimmy Hoffa, this film claims as a for instance, bugged Peter Lawford's and Marilyn's apartments to get dirt on the brothers. Now the film decides to take a deep dive into conspiracy theory. Marilyn probably didn't die at the recorded time, which means she possibly could have. Dr. Greenson and the studio fixers arrived to clean up any evidence the Kennedys had any connection with Marilyn. This is very possible, but isn't evidence of any kind that any Kennedy was at the house the day Marilyn died. Then the maid made her phone call to the police. Oh dear, how sad, never mind. Nothing to see here, move along. Actor Marilyn Monroe was born on June the 1st, 1926 in Los Angeles, and she died in 1962. Alive, Marilyn was extremely annoying, divisive, deeply flawed, and manipulative. Dead, she could be pounded into any shape the media wanted. Blonde, sex goddess, slut, comedian, drug abuser, media whore. It even sometimes claimed she was talented, as a cack-handed compliment, of course. Hollywood helped her recreate herself as a fantasy dream girl, and then expected her life to mirror that image to increase its profits. Success wasn't her straitjacket. It was the image she used to promote herself, which had a shelf life that would only last until she was about 30. Hollywood is not the kind of place that would allow someone, especially a woman, to reinvent themselves. It would rather look for the next Marilyn Monroe. Much has been written about her life. To sum up, it was a mess. She suffered from depression and poor self-image. She said, People had a habit of looking at me as if I was some kind of mirror instead of a person. They didn't see me. They saw their own lewd thoughts. Then they white-masked themselves by calling me the lewd one. She had a low opinion of fame, as she observed, I've often stood silent at a party for hours, listening to my movie idols turn into dull and little people. More tellingly, she also said, Fame is like caviar. It's good to have caviar, but not every damn day. Scriptwriter Arthur Miller was born on October the 17th, 1915, in New York, and he died in 2005. He didn't write many film scripts, though many of his plays have been adapted to film, some multiple times. When his father's business was devastated by the Great Depression, he soured on the idea of the American dream. Some critics see this as a theme of his work. I tend more to the view that he sees toxic masculinity as the cause of the souring of the American dream. He attended the University of Michigan, which is where he wrote his first plays. He returned to New York and, in 1938, joined the Federal Theatre Project. In the 40s, he began to collaborate with director Elia Kazan. 
Their friendship was broken when Kazan agreed to testify before HUAC. In 1957, Arthur was found in contempt of Congress for refusing to name names. He turned his failed relationship with Marilyn Monroe into the play After the Fall. Deaths continued as if nothing had changed. On. January the 6th. Peter Bogdanovich, U.S. director, born 1939. January the 20th. Meatloaf, U.S. singer-actor, born 1947, and he still doesn't like his teddy. February the 7th. Douglas Trumbull, the director, special effects technician, born 1942. March the 13th. William Hurt, U.S. actor, born 1950. May the 26th. Ray Liotta, U.S. actor and producer, born 1954. July the 6th. James Kahn, the U.S. actor, born 1940. September the 23rd. Louise Fletcher, the U.S. actor, born 1934. On a lighter note, I give you a documentary concert footage film in the form of Travelin' Band, Credence Clearwater Revival at the Royal Albert Hall. Director, Bob Smeaton. Editor, Michael Angelo Matzius. Actors, Jeff Bridges and Credence Clearwater Revival. In 1969, US rock group Credence Clearwater Revival were outselling the Beatles. In 1970, they went on tour through Europe to Scandinavia, Germany, France, and England, with a show-topping performance at the Royal Albert Hall. Within a few years, they were gone. And now, they're all but forgotten. This concert film has a two-act structure. The first act covers the rise of the group and includes contemporaneous interviews. The second act is the Royal Albert Hall performance, which includes a little historical fudging in the first act to create the impression that it is a make-it-or-break-it performance rather than the icing topping the cake of this film. It all began in El Cerrito, where high school friends got together to form a band. The format was broken up by military service and, when the band got back together, they discovered they were on a mission from God. The pop music landscape had completely changed. The band decided to change with it and tinkered with psychedelic stylings. Songwriter and lead vocalist John Fogarty could see this wasn't working. They needed to return to the basics. The band needed a revival. He took his cue from Delta Blues and Credence Clearwater began to revive and set forth on the path to ultimate success. If you compare the concert performance with those of today, you'll find it a crude package. The band took pains to ensure the sound of the live performance were as close as possible to the studio recordings. These were kept raw and rough with a live vibe to them. They owned their own sound system and, like The Who, put the speakers at the back of the stage. Not the best position for a musician to retain his hearing. The evidence suggests the set was about 45 minutes long. 
or although there were probably two acts performing before they arrived on stage. It's a short set compared to what we would get today. The concert footage has been shot on a variety of different formats, and in some cases, you can see the film grain. That said, the music rocks. What more could you ask for? Rock group Credence Clearwater Revival, in some form, existed from 1959 until 1972. The Blue Velvets were formed by John Fogarty, Doug Clifford and Stu Cook at Portola Junior High School, El Cerrito, California. Tom Fogarty, John's brother, soon joined in. In 1964, they signed a contract with Fantasy Records, who changed their name to The Gollywogs. In 1966, John and Doug were drafted into the U.S. Coastal Reserve. In 1967, they were back on dry land. It was a lucky year for the group. Saul Zantz bought Fantasy Records, and the group used the opportunity to change their name to Credence Clearwater Revival, the revival signalling the return of John and Doug to Civvy Street. The rest is music history, as the group also changed their sound from the soothing sound of the surfers to the southern rock drawl that became their signature. Next episode begins a four-episode slog through the films of Pachis. Think mostly Spanish with some South American content. Don't forget to become a Patreon or Buzzsprout supporter because that's the only way you'll hear this content. For the rest of yous that want to continue at the level of a noob, the next episode will continue where there's plenty of horse shit on the road to be cleaned. England, in 1895. In the meantime, fa'atiti! <laughs>